0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Ellen Wyland smith who teaches writing at the University of Southern California. Her book, Onada: From Free Love Utopia to the Well-Set Table, published by Picador Press, is the topic of this show. As a descendant of the founders, Wayland smith has given us an insightful and beautifully written history of the 19th century Onada community. Begun in 1848, by the religious visionary John Humphrey Noyes and his followers, Oneida became an experiment in biblical communism, complex marriage, gender equality, non-procreative sex, and socialized child rearing as a symbol of universal fellowship. Noyes' practice of eugenics attempted to produce a generation of spiritual giants and create painful situations for those accused of sticky love that favored preferred lovers and children. Internal conflicts outside legal and social pressures brought its demise as a religious community in 1879. A remnant of entrepreneurial descendants built the secular Onada community limited on new industrial and marketing methods. Rejecting the radical sexual ethics of their elders, the younger generation sought to provide a business model of brotherly love through innovative labor relations. United Brand thrived in the American marketplace until its bankruptcy in 2006. The legacy of the United community continues to fire the imagination for its alternative social arrangements and business innovation. Here is my conversation with Ellen Wyland smith Now let me introduce you to the author, Ellen Wayland smith Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is beautifully written, and it's very insightful. But before you tell your story about the book and what's, uh, the, the things that you found, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Oneida.
1: Well, so I'm a descendant of the original founders of the Oneida community, which was a utopian Christian um, sort of millennial community. Uh, it started in 1848 in upstate New York. Um, and I came to writing it sort of uh, by serendipity. Um, You know, my writing of it sort of came out of my sense uh, that there were sort of a a narrative that I received as a kid growing up about my family history and about the company, Oneida Limited, was a sort of strange and contradictory one full of emotions, and, um, you know, my, my interest in sort of probing that further. So I actually started writing the book the summer of 2012. I was living uh, in Oneida with my parents. And, and the, the thing that's sort of strange about my history is that it never uh, – the Oneida community history was sort of ongoing from the time they were founded in 1848 uh, until the company disbanded and uh, went bankrupt in 2006. Um, so it was really kind of living history for me as I grew up. Um, you know, growing up, all of my cousins and uncles worked for Oneida Limited, which at that point was obviously no longer a commune, but had turned into a silverware company. Um, and my, a lot of my relatives lived in what we called the mansion house. It was a 93,000-square-foot brick and ivy villa that my ancestors had built for themselves in the 19th century to live in. Um, and my grandmother lived there, and a lot of my relatives lived there. It had been sort of divided up into apartments. Um, after the breakup of the official community so i so I grew up in you know the sort of grounds on the grounds of the original community with all the library was still intact from from the nineteenth century the the big hall where they the religious meetings with the portraits of the, the founders were it was all there so it was something that was very sort of intimate it was an intimate history to me even though i didn 't fully understand what it was growing up um and as I say, I was living in the mansion house with my parents for a month in uh, the summer of 2012 and um, began to sort of read the community publications that they, you know, just sort of casually pulling them down off the library shelf uh, and, and discovered that it was, it was a very strange and different kind of organism than I had heard. You know, uh, that I'd gotten a sort of strict business narrative growing up. Um, and so really that was the origin of the book.
0: Well, as you know, the Oneida community has attracted so much attention from from historians and other scholars uh, right. over the years. Several books, many books have been written, articles have been written about it. It shows up in a lot of histories. What makes your book different? And I think you just gave us a little hint of what makes it different. And what do you think that others have missed in writing the story of Oneida?
1: Um, well, I think, first of all, it's it, it, it's not a strictly academic book. It was a trade book. Um, but with an academic sort of twist, because that's my background. So I think the the way in which it was written was different from standard sort of academic treatments of the topic. Um, I also think, I, you know, I was one of only two people so far to take the history of the community from its founding in 1848 through its uh, transformation into a corporation and into a an NIDA limited into the 20th century. Um, Mary Lockwood Cardin, or Marin rather, Lockwood Cardin uh, wrote a book in the 50s, I believe, about you know tracing its transformation from a commune into a corporation. Um, so that is not usually part of the sort of academic take on it. And then I do think my you know my own personal sort of involvement uh, as a descendant makes it different, uh, even though I don't bring that in. Specifically, the, the, the heart of the story, it appears in my introduction and in my conclusion, and it sort of frames my experience and, you know, the sort of lens through which I look at the experiment. Let's,
0: uh, let's talk about the founder of the Oneida yeah. community, John Humphreys Noyes, who was yeah. a, a, ma- a visionary, extremely different kind of visionary. What, per- mm-hmm. what kind of personality was he, and where did he get his ideas What were his original ideas?
1: Right. Well, you know, there was a strange hodgepodge, uh, uh, and I think that's what makes him interesting and also really hard to penetrate um, because nothing in his upbringing would have indicated that he would, uh, you know, have come up with such an elaborate and strange vision of what uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth would look like. Um, You know, he... uh, the United Community was founded on the idea that the second coming of Christ had already happened. That happened two thousand years ago, uh, roughly. Well, at that time, uh, a little less. Uh, he prophet. He sort of uh, hypothesized that it, um, it had happened in seventy A.D. at the falling of the temple in Jeris- Jerusalem, and that somehow the world had missed, you know, this this second coming when, when Christ came back and, and sort of um, and uh, resurrected the, the saints um and so his sort of conclusion from that was that we were living in paradise already uh and that we should imitate the way in which the saints in heaven were living and again he had this sort of strange idea that the saints in heaven had corporal bodies in some fashion like uh you know people on earth did and that they had sexual intercourse and that this was and that they sort of enjoyed material fruits he didn't really go into <laughs> detail about how this would happen with a heavenly body as opposed to a corporal body um, but that we on earth had to sort of imitate this way of living and where everything was shared where everything including sexual partners and sexual energy was shared in an equal and, uh, manner so that you were sort of fused into one body of christ uh... and so this is really sort of what he set out to do um, when he founded the united community uh, But as I say, he sort sort of borrowed bits and pieces of his theory from different places. Um, You know, the idea of of pooling capital together um, and, you know, where the the members had to turn over all of their money and or, you know, property land holdings to the use of the community as a whole. uh, And the community held it in, you know, in in lieu of individual owners, right? And everything was... was, uh, Was portioned out evenly. Uh, That he sort of borrowed from um, from uh, Fourier's ideas of um, and you know sort of some of the more uh, you know sort of economic socialist ideas that were were percolating during the time. But that actually was less. His idea, at least originally, was less about sort of material equality, and it really was this sort of strange idea of spiritual fusion among the members. And that, as far as I can tell, was sort of his own. His own invention.
0: Now, it looks like there were other visionaries like him in the 19th yeah. century. Where a lot of utopian communities or different lifestyle people, alternative lifestyles that people were doing right. that were religious in nature. But what makes Anida unique or particular is that it it lasted quite a bit, a long time. the The spirit, right. the religious community aspect of it, it was like 30 years. Right. Exactly. So that's a left. that's a long time because most of them fall apart, you know, after three years because right. they can't make a living. Uh, exactly. So, uh, how was he able to attract a following, and who were his or, or, uh, original or yeah original followers, the first followers?
1: Um, well, his original followers were uh, actually his family members. Um, so he he went to uh, you know he was he was sort of posted, uh, poised to become a lawyer. When his mother took him uh, in 1831 to uh, one of these revival meetings, one of these church revival meetings, she was a very devout Congregationalist, um, and he actually got religion, and you know the the, the way in which uh, so many uh, thousands of Americans did in the 19th century during the the Second Great Awakening, um, and decided he wanted to uh, to devote his his life to God, and so he went to Yale Theological Seminary and was booted out for his you know, his very heretical idea of um, sinlessness. You know, the, his, his before he got into his sort of strange ideas about sexual, sexual sharing in heaven and on earth, his idea was that humans could be made perfect. He was a perfectionist, as this small sort of sect of heterodox uh, Protestants called themselves. Um, and he believed that just by accepting uh, Christ's grace into your heart, you could become sinless and made perfect on earth. And that's the death of the seminary. So then he was, you know, uh, he, he sort of uh, was considered a an outcast in many ways, and he sort of went back home humiliated. Um, and but his original, you know, he, he drew on his family members. His mother uh, and two of his sisters and a brother uh, were among his original members. And then sort of people. He you know he published he published various um, sort of tracks perfectionist tracks during this time, which didn't have a wide uh, viewing, but uh, were were read by some people. And uh, one of the most uh, influential sort of early um, couples who joined his group were Mary and George Cragen, who were sort of, you know, they they lived in New York and they they worked in sort of reform movement things. And uh, they moved to Putney, Vermont, which is where John Humphrey Noyce was from, to join his movement uh, in, I think, 1840. Um so it started it started small and it started as what he called a bible study group um in putney Vermont and they were actually hounded out of putney once once they started their uh wife swapping uh and husband swapping uh in eighteen forty six once this sort of leaked out to the to the uh, the villagers in Putney they were literally driven out of town and and moved to Oneida, which is where they found a a a you know a haven. <laughs> It was it was less populated, and um, people weren't particularly curious about what was going on inside the commune, so they were able to sort of build up from there.
0: So, how many people um, are you talking about when they're they're finally in, um, but in the Kenwood? Is it a Kenwood okay. or a Ken,
1: Kenwood is actually it's Oneida. Kenwood is a name that um, they created after the breakup to to sort of name their little village. Okay. Um, but uh, no, at that point, it was a It was called Oneida Creek, and. Um, it was land, you know, that uh, one of their, a perfectionist colleague of theirs had, um, and he invited them when, you know, when he got word that they had been run out of Putney, he invited them to come down and, and set up camp on his land. Okay, and so, so that. That was about, they had a house? Um, well, at that point they had, you know, the land had been sort of bought, uh, between quotation marks, from um, the United Indians, Uh who were gone at that point. And there were some sort of Indian uh, log cabins on the land that they, that's initially where they set up. There were maybe 25 or 30 of them at the beginning. Um, and then they built the summer that they were in Oneida, uh, it was 1848, the spring of 1848, they uh, actually built a, you know, a sort of modest house. The uh, the house that still exists today with a mansion house. Uh, wasn't built until later in the 1860s.
0: Okay. Now, they, they move out to, to this uh, Oneida community. They, they're on this land that's got some shacks or, to live in. How do they? What is their economic base? How are they going to support themselves or live?
1: Right. Well, they were fortunate enough that noise came from a wealthy family
0: uh, and had a quite uh, a
1: large inheritance for the time. Um, and along with the money, uh, so some money sort of donated from his wife, that he married and um, some other early joiners they had a sort of total capital of forty thousand dollars which you know in in the 1840s was maybe the equivalent of a million dollars today so um, it was enough to keep them going as they tried to figure, sort themselves out and figure out what to do Um, and their original plan like many of these alternative communities that were founded in the 1840s was an agrarian one they wanted to Um, They wanted to plant orchards. They wanted to harvest fruit, uh, you know, this sort of back to the earth kind of thing, which has always been attractive to people fleeing uh, mainstream society. Uh, And they figured out pretty quickly that that wasn't going to earn them money. They were sort of burning through their capital um, and needed to do something else. And they they were very inventive. They were willing to do anything. And they tried, you know, they were sort of jacks of all trades. And I also think one of one of the things that allowed them to be financially successful was that uh, most of the people who joined, eventually joined the community, and, you know, they, they swelled at their height. They were uh, about 300 members. Um, but men, joiners, especially early joiners, were uh, artisans, were skilled craftsmen, um, you know, people who were shoemakers or uh, carriage makers or blacksmiths, um, all of these kinds of artisans joined and they were pretty much able to sort of make their own you know provide for themselves Uh, and then they began sort of drawing on these these sort of in-house skills in order to to, to make money.
0: Now they had I want to talk about their economic base before we get into the you know the day-to-day life but they had certain ideas about work Mm -hmm. and uh, what work meant and how yeah. much to do yeah. it, and who was to do it, and can you talk a little bit about their work ethic or their yeah their work ethic, whatever it was. Well, they
1: you know they like many Americans in uh, at this time in the eighteen forties uh, when the country was shifting away from uh, sort of you know a production economy and a use value economy towards an abundance uh, and a uh, exchange value economy. So you're on the sh- you know shifting between. These of small-scale scale subsistence economies to a market economy, uh, and it's the beginning of the wage system, right? Um, and one thing that I find funny, especially, you know, in talking to people, as I have over this past year about the book, uh, is that a lot of people don't understand how uh, jarring and sort of traumatic the switch to a wage system was. Uh, you know, it seems from from our perspective in the 21st century, of course, you go to a job and you, you know, work X number of hours and you get a, a yearly salary for it. But this obvi- this is a sort of relatively new historical development, right? And that, um, you know, America was based on this idea that wage labor was sort of akin to slavery, that it was dependent labor, that if you didn't own your own property and, and own your own tools and own your own workshop or farm, you were in some ways a degraded citizen, right? Um and so this was the time when, when wage labor was coming into fashion, and many people were, were sort of horrified by it, uh, including my ancestors, who called it wage slavery. That was one, many critics of the wage system, as they called it, the new industrial wage system called it wage slavery because it implied the sort of dependent relationship with a with a overseer or master. Um, and so they were very against the wage system, uh, the, the wage relationship uh, that was that was becoming the dominant uh, form of, of uh, the economy and uh, they for themselves they also very much didn't like what was happening in terms of men being the workers and women sort of staying in the home you know clo- cloistered up in the home with with the children with the child care and the, the home care they thought that was very insalubrious uh, and their sort of ideal was that men and women would work side by side both in the home and outside the home um and then the other ideal was that you didn't work too much right that work should be a joyful sort of participation in in creating you know your daily bread, but that it shouldn't be overly onerous and it shouldn't become a, in any way sort of divorced from the mainstream of your your other life uh and so they you know at the beginning they had their they had their obviously their um their orchards and their, uh, their crops, um, they also had a um, – they, they made straw hats. Uh, they did sort of piece work for a manufacturer making straw hats. Um, they also – what would end up being their biggest uh, manufacturing business, but which started small, were animal traps. So they had a um, – they started making animal traps in the blacksmith shop of one of their original members. And so, you know, their idea was that you work, uh, you know, maybe four or five hours a day, but that you always intersperse that with other activities like reading. They were very big on uh, education, on sort of self-improvement. And so, and they, you know, loved learning languages. They loved learning history. They would, anybody who sort of had a specialty that he or she could teach would set up a class that you could sign up for. Um, And so they had a, you know, they, they really believed that turning work into this sort of Drudgery, uh, this this drudge like occupation that was divorced from other aspects of your life was, was, was death, and um, so they tried to avoid that. Uh,
0: you talked about the they had quite a few people who had skills, artisans. Uh, how many? Do you think that that was part of the attraction to? If you, they got up to three hundred members, do you think they were attracted to the a different economic model? It was a, a opportunity to work differently. Right.
1: That's so interesting. You know, I, I don't. There, there's not
0: a lot, and I don't know if this is because
1: of the burning, which I talk about in my book, where they burned large portions of their record. Uh, this is later in the 1940s. Um, mostly the the information regarding the the sexual practices of the community, but maybe other other things too. Because there's not a lot of information. There's a lot of information about. You know, they sort of kept detailed accounts of what the different members. Uh, applying for membership and uh, being granted membership did uh, professionally, but not a lot of information about what drew them to the community. Um, you know, one one thing that would happen, I think it was also, you know, a lot of times, for instance, my great-great-great-grandmother was widowed, um, and she came with her two children uh, because, I think primarily because she was a widow, and so and this was seen as a place that was sort of a haven for uh, people who didn't have stable family or economic structures. Um, but she obviously was not an
0: artisan, so. She yeah, I mean,
1: while. I can just
0: see in in a time of turmoil that a, a community like this could be very attractive to many people.
1: Yeah, I think it was. I think you know, um, it was seen as a sort of a safe place, as a place that was you know setting up an alternative to these. Scary changes that were happening in the economic and social world out of, of mainstream American society, um, and as a as a religious, you know, a, a sort of religiously committed place as well. But um, it's interesting there. I don't think there. At least I have not seen a lot of records giving detailed sort of the detailed reasoning behind why people were attracted to this particular commune as opposed to others.
0: Okay. Um. Let's talk a little bit more about, we just talked about work and how they thought about work, but they also had different domestic arrangements. Let's talk about first uh, child rearing, uh, yeah. what their ideas of child rearing were. which, did, And then I wanted to ask you whether they had any particular ideas about dietary uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so their, their domestic arrangements were, uh, John Humphrey Noyes
1: believed that in order to become one body in Christ, all of the different members had to share everything equally. That applied to material goods; you weren't allowed to own extra things. Everybody got sort of standard-issue, uh, you know, uniforms. Nobody had special accommodations or special food or anything like that. Um, but in terms of domestic arrangements, it also he thought the the sort of root of material selfishness. In humans, came from the existence of the nuclear family. That once you had a nuclear family and somebody that you, you know, possessed through marriage, uh, and with children, you then became selfish and sort of, you know, self-aggrandizing. That you wanted to grab stuff for yourself in your unit, um, and that if you shared, uh, that the root of selfishness was really sort of emotional uh, selfishness, rooted in marriage and family. So the idea was that there was no marriage. Uh, all women were married to all men and vice versa. And the, the um, they policed that very heavily in terms of, you know, uh, you could have sexual relationships. Any man could have a sexual relationship with any woman, but you couldn't become too attached to any one particular person. They called that sticky love uh... and it was a sign of a bad spirit, it was a sign of an non-Christian spirit, if you, you know, poured too much affection or attachment to any one person and you would be separated uh... if you were, you know, somehow discovered to be in sticky love with somebody else um, and then the same thing uh... attached to their children, for some reason they, they love coming up with these sort of latinate words for um... <laughs> for things including uh... the different kinds of sins, ways in which people could sin uh, An overattachment to children was called philoprogenitiveness. so, you know, excessive love of your progeny. Um, and you, you know, you, oh, if a woman had uh, a baby, uh, the baby would live with her uh, in her room for a year or so until the baby grew, and then they had a separate children's house where the children were raised communally.
0: Okay. Uh, how about the eating? Was there any dietary restrictions? You know, a lot of these. Uh...
1: Yeah, I know right. They, you know, they were interested in those ideas, and they read, you know, Sylvester Graham and and so forth, and and talked a lot about it. They, there were no stimulants or tobacco. They were definitely, um, you know, there was no alcohol or tobacco. But beyond that, they they weren't vegetarian. They didn't have, um, you know, a particular. They ate what was cheap and expedient, basically.
0: Okay, so they're they're practicing. Uh, he uh, noise develops this doctrine of complex uh, Marriage, and uh, he he believes that there's a deep connection between sex and spirituality.
1: Right.
0: And, uh, so, and you just explained what the problem was with monogamy and pa- and parenting. So, right. you've got all these, but there has to be some system of uh, controlling the population, and then you don't know right. whose whose child is whose. Which I guess it's a good thing in that kind of community, (laughs) except the mothers know who their children are.
1: Right, right, exactly. Well, they they actually were very, um, and this is you know again, sort of part of their strangeness was um, they they sort of they coined the term free love, and were often called accused of free love by outsiders. But really, the sexual relationships were anything but free in the community. They were very closely monitored, Um, and so. You know, with with a few exceptions, most of the children who were born they, they could trace back who who the parents were. Um, but the main reason they could do that was that for the first let's see, from 1848 until 1869, so the, for the first 20 years of existence, they had a very strict um, uh, birth control policy. Uh, they didn't want to populate for the first 10 years or so because they were sort of financially precarious, and then after that. It, would, it had just sort of become a policy, and they, they stuck with it. Um, they began a, a breeding program, which really was a breeding program, starting in 1869, but um, before that, uh, the sex, this, the, they enforced, you know, uh, birth control. So there were very few, you know, there were a handful of sort of accidents and accidental pregnancies, but um, by and large it worked.
0: What was, the, what was the nature of that birth control that they were using? Control.
1: So they, he called it male continence. Um, it's sometimes been called coitus reservatus, and it's basically the male never ejaculates. Um, and, you know, it, it's sort of, again, strange as it sounds from the 21st century perspective. In the 19th century, there was this whole idea, first of all, a sort of manly virtue with self-control, and um, being able to control oneself was, was seen as a as a virtue, both you know, as a human and as a Christian, uh, there was also a sort of discourse circulating about uh, the loss of bodily fluids as sort of decreasing one's vitality and and liveliness. Uh, there was a fear of excess uh, ejaculation as somehow you know making sapping uh, the strength out of out of men. So, uh, for you know, for a variety of reasons, ideological and otherwise, this this sort of worked, and the men abided by it. And, um, now,
0: so there was a lot of. I notice that the children who were growing up in this, once they get to be, um, go through puberty and they're uh, ready for sexual initiation. Um, young, yeah, the men, the young boys, were taught the sexual practice early, right? I mean, right. they they this was like a, there was training to for this before. There was
1: training, yeah, right? Yeah, before, and they actually would pair the. Initiates the boys with older women past menopause to uh, in order to avoid the risk of pregnancy.
0: Okay, so the, the older woman could teach the young man yes. uh, what to do. Okay, and and what I noticed was also that the uh, the young women, the girls who yes. are ready for initiation, had to go through noise first. That's right. Yes, this is one of the you know sort of uh,
1: steamier sides of the. Experiment was that um, he was the initiator. I mean, as the the sort of authoritarian head of the of of the community, he initiated the new virgins. When he got past a certain age, he started sort of delegating it to to other uh, men that he was close to. Now, Um, but yeah,
0: and the women were and the
1: girls were quite young. They could be as young as thirteen.
0: Okay, so you've got this uh, you've got this uh, noises trying to implement the sexual. discipline actually it's a discipline to us it's, a, it's, it's a yeah mm-hmm. it sounds like free love but it's a very mm-hmm. hard discipline because first you've got to the men have to control themselves to a certain point mm-hmm. they can't just they can't attach themselves to each other people have to remain sort of aloof yeah. uh it's a this is a tough tough sexual arrangement for most people okay yeah it is it is it's not it's not free love like you said so no. so what's interesting to me and you talked about the problems that this created there were some really um first i want to know why there was there's got to be uh, there's just stories in your book about people mm-hmm. having sticky love mothers with right. children lovers who and and how noise is intervening in this and trying to split people apart, and um, right. at this point I'm thinking there's a lot of people here, and they're putting up with this, right? And, and how much power he had! I was just amazed at how much power he was able to wield in the most intimate aspects of people's lives. So,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's pretty amazing.
0: So. Uh, um, can you uh talk can you talk a little bit about some examples from your book of, of some of these stories that are just uh right. gut wrenching?
1: They are gut wrenching, yeah. Um well I think first of all, I mean he was the head, uh but he and he had sort of, you know, ultimate ultimate right of saying yay or nay uh, to, to anything. Um uh, but they actually did, you know, sort of uh, as true to their Paul did work by committee they were very big on committees and Noyce was actually really good at delegating authority and and accepting you know he would sort of give committees the task of doing x y or z and he would you know he would weigh in on their conclusions or their their proposals for how the community should do x y or z but he wasn't necessarily he wasn't controlling in that way he was able to um, to delegate and there was a sense that this was even though he was the they acknowledged head there was a sense that this was a communal uh, sort of thing, and that it grew that any kind of sort of decisions they took were sort of organically reached. They weren't they weren't sort of top down, and they actually were very unlegalistic. And they that was another thing uh, that uh, members often got criticized for was called the quote spirit of legality. If you were too legalistic about something, um, you know, you that that was going counter to to the spirit of Christ, which was about sort of consensus and 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 not. Uh, you know, digging and sticking to sort of a script as it were. Um, and so for, for most of their decisions they were, you know, they were reached sort of communally and I think that the other thing um, that helped with this enforcement was they had a practice called mutual criticism um, which was essentially their way of dealing with wayward people, people who were, you know, not sort of conforming to the norms of, the, of behavior, uh, in addition to just being an open practice that they thought was spiritually, you know, salutary. So mutual criticism was when a member would come before a board of, you know, a panel of people who could be sort of randomly selected. Sometimes the person who was being criticized would select specific people that they thought uh, would be good to hear from. And the person would submit to, you know, uh, this panel who would drop a list of everything that this uh, the person under review uh, was doing wrong. So all of, all of his or her faults um and we do we do have some you know what survived among the archives are some lists uh, you know some sort of uh, notes that uh panel members would make of these these review sessions and they were they were excruciatingly brutal um but and and also <laughs> strangely you know you you could be criticized for anything from the sublime to the ridiculous you know you could be obviously most sort of harshly criticized for being sticky towards a particular person or you know not having the right Uh, not being in a right relationship with a a daughter or son. But you could also criticize for, you know, telling bad jokes, for um, interrupting, for being pigeon-toed. One girl was criticized for being pigeon-toed. So it was like, you know, the the full gamut. You just got everything. Um, And I think this mechanism, people accepted it. They often sought it out. They thought that it was good for their soul to hear these things and to try to better themselves. And so, you know, the the kinds of the, the fact that they accepted to do things that were contrary to their wishes was actually part of the program.
0: Okay, yeah, because they're 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 seeking perfection.
1: They're seeking perfection, right? And they know that they're not perfect. And for them, perfection means total selflessness. It means it's you know it's it's almost a Buddhist kind of no self concept. I mean, they speak of it in those terms. They talk about how. You have to love God and his creatures, but not love the creatures. That, for them, was idolatry. If you loved any one creature or thing too much, that was idolatry. You weren't loving God, you were loving the thing. So a
0: detachment, uh, detachment. It
1: was de- detachment. And so you learned to, you know, if you could detach yourself from things properly, you were, you, that, that was salvation for them, was to be utterly selfless insofar as you, you were attached to nothing.
0: Okay, now, Noyes is trying to do this uh, eugenics project, and he's trying to get to something. He's trying to create this kind of race of uh, super spiritual g- spiritual giants. Exactly. And so he's, tr- he's picking among his followers, or he thinks the ones who have heightened spiritual sensitivity, right. a- and getting them to breed so that maybe their children would be even more sensitive. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um you know, he, this is uh he wrote an essay called uh scientific propagation noise did uh which he published in 1870. Um and you know, he just he borrows from uh he bar, he borrows from evolutionary theory and um talks about how there's no reason why if uh you know, physical traits are inherited and have, have pr- proven to be inherited, that spiritual traits can't be inherited as well. Uh, and it's this very the, the essay itself is very strange. It's a strange mishmash of drawing on you know genetics uh, such as the the science existed at that point in 1870, but also um, drawing on biblical criticism and the idea that the you know that the uh, Hebrews were sort of the first uh, geneticists that they they inbred and that that created a more spiritual type, and that was basically his. Um, that was his solution for creating a new spiritual type uh, in the 19th century.
0: Okay, there's one last question on this uh, sort of thing: is uh, how did he avoid interbreeding and, and, and the problems of interbreeding?
1: Okay. Uh, well, he didn't entirely. Um, you know, as I say in my book, he actually. Uh, it's, an, it's interesting you ask. I, I'm not sure when you know the when geneticists discovered the problem with interbreeding, but they hadn't discovered. It. By the time he was, uh, you know, doing his experiments, and he in fact thought and uh, would have, if he hadn't, you know, run up against criticism, that breeding between brothers and sisters was perfectly
0: fine. Okay, so and he, yeah, so because you you have a you you have a picture of some of some of the children who were born from this who were strong and look healthy and and beautiful yeah. and all that, and, and other people studied them because they were an oddity and they could be studied, right. Look, this is what happens. Right. But uh, do, were there children in the community that were notably, you know, mentally retarded or dysfunctional in no. some way? No, not at all. And that, in hmm. fact,
1: you know, they were very, uh, the people who studied them afterwards were very anxious to prove how uh, this didn't happen at all. In fact, you know that they did hmm. the catalog. Everybody turned out to be strong and smart, and you know able-bodied and so forth. Um, but they, you know, to be fair, they there was just one generation that was uh, bred, as it were, okay. starting in um, '69, and there wasn't a lot of inbreeding because uh, you know the, here and there, but it, it wasn't as close as first cousins.
0: Okay. Or Did they keep a detailed record? They keep detailed records of... Yes, they kept... Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they knew knew who was related to whom, and they knew... Oh, yeah. Okay. So... But on the face of it,
1: you know, having a child between first cousins wouldn't have been a problem for them.
0: Right. Okay. Um, All right. So now, while all this is happening, (laughs) they're having this alternative society. They're also becoming very industrial in their ways of making a living, Right. And learning from the outside world and adapting them for their community and becoming very productive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, and at some point here, they it, they begin to send some of their young people out of the community for a, a higher education. Right. And so, how, and this is where I I thought was kind of maybe the 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 beginning of the end. Uh,
1: yeah, it definitely was
0: when they yeah. begin to send their 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 some of their young men off to medical school, oh, yeah. or and they. Right. And they get exposed to science. Right, right. And talk well, about you,
1: that. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that they had always been exposed to science. Um, you know, these communities usually run a gamut in terms of how closed or open they are to the outside world. Um, the community was definitely closed insofar as they didn't have a lot of dealings with outsiders, except, um, you know, they, they basically stayed on their, on their, their grounds. Um, but they had a lot of visitors coming through, so they were constantly seeing outsiders coming through. And the one thing that they did do is they were incredibly literate and interested in the outside world of scholarship. So they had this very large library. They had sus- subscriptions to all of the 19th century, the great 19th century magazines, um, you know, to science magazines. They gave, you know, they, they would, would, bar- would buy books on chemistry, the latest sort of, you know, theories and, and books about chemistry, about biology and so forth. So they weren't, you know, they were oddly, you know, they, they were this sort of strange fusion of intense religious belief, but also completely open to science. And, in fact, that was part of what Noyes said when he sent these uh, these boys off, starting in the late 1860s um, to Yale. They all went to Yale, uh, was that, you know, we have to make Christianity scientific. We have to make it uh we need to, to make it stronger so that we can move forward in this new scientific age that we've embarked upon. So they, but obviously, it, you know, it sort of backfired insofar as once people got away from the community and sort of mingled to whatever extent they did with, with outsiders and, and got these new ideas, uh, coming back to the community was, was more difficult.
0: Right, and so it was also, as at the same time that young men are going out and learning, there's some new scientific stuff uh, going on. And, mm-hmm. uh, but within the community, conflicts begin to mm-hmm. emerge and becoming more intense, and he's getting older. He's not right. as strong, and uh, right. there's also pressure from the surrounding community. Right, uh, the, the legal and social pressure coming right. to bear. So there's a bunch of constellations of things that are happening that are kind yeah. of uh, putting pressure on this thing to keep. You know, it's not going to be able to keep exactly. going forever. Can you talk right. about all all those elements and um, mm-hmm. how it affected how the it begins to fall apart? Fall apart, right? Yeah.
1: Um, well, I think first of all, they they become incredibly, as you mentioned, successful industrialists. They um, one of their members. Uh, whose name was Sewell Newhouse, was a trap maker. He made animal traps for everything from mice all the way up to bears. Um, and he had a, you know, a sort of uh, a business out of his own small blacksmith shop. And they realized that if they started producing these traps on a an industrial scale, they could uh, make money. So they um, built a trap factory and they started manufacturing and became one of the most popular traps in America. Um, they also simultaneously, the sewing machine had been invented, and they started making uh, silk thread for sewing machines. Um, and again, because they had mechanics and these very skilled mechanics in there among their members, they were able to build the machinery themselves in house, and then uh, you know get these get these factories up and running. However, they could no longer supply the labor from among their own you know 250 or 300 members, uh, and so they started to, ironically, dip into the pool of slave, what what they once called wage slaves, uh, wage labor, in order to man their machines. Uh, And at their height, they they employed over 200 uh, outside workers uh, in their their factories. So, you know, there was that contradiction. Here you had this uh, community that was built on the idea that you had to resist uh, the wage system, that it was demeaning, that it, you know, created a a class of sort of subhumans who were alienated from their life and work uh, who actually had to then use this in order to keep themselves going. So there was that contradiction happening. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it was also the first, the, the first generation who sort of settled in Oneida had all been joiners. They had joined of their own free will. They had come as adults or, you know, uh, young adults to join. And starting in the 1860s, you have the first generation who were born into the community uh, and who begin to sort of question whether you know this is what this is the life that they want. Um, and and that's that sort of movement, that, that sort of revolutionary that, that sort of spark of revolutionary youth um, is exacerbated by the fact that you have these uh, these 10 or so, young men going to Yale and coming back and importing these these ideas back into the community. So, yeah, you've got that. And then, obviously, at the same time, noise. he's going increasingly deaf. He can no longer hold the evening meetings because he can't hear. He's sort of retired and, uh, to some extent, retreated from the sexual pool. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's
0: kind of a perfect storm. Yeah, what's going on with the outside community? Uh, how do they how do they see um, Oneida? I mean, they're a empl- big employer, okay, in town. Well, that right, right. They
1: they had been able to hold off outside criticism for quite a while, for for precisely that reason. They were seen as upstanding citizens. They were neat. They were clean. They had these factories that employed local people. They you know they would throw they were they were really sort of publicists for themselves as well. They would throw open. They had this incredibly beautiful. By the late eighteen sixties, early nineteen seven or eighteen seventies, they had this beautiful. Chateau that they had built with you know grounds and and uh, gardens and so forth and they would throw it open on weekends to visitors who would come through and they would bake uh, shortcake and strawberries and they had their own orchestra and they would play you know they would they would have their orchestra playing and they would serve free strawberry shortcake to these the guests and people would come by the droves to visit this sort of strange place where the women wore pants uh, and you know get a free a free day of, of music and entertainment, um, and they and then, as you say, they also employed people. So uh, for a long time, when people would sort of start to grumble about, you know, the the sexual goings on inside the community, they didn't have a lot of local support. People just said, "Leave them alone." Um, and then finally, the uh, the the sort of spirit in the United States. Overall, in the 1870s, sort of took a turn towards the more conservative, and the Mormons were were getting um, battered in the press and um, and legally, and, uh, and sense so that they were sort of next. Um, but actually, what, what sort of precipitated the fall of the community was Noyes got paranoid. He sort of heard a rumor that they were coming to arrest him um, on charges of uh, adultery. It's, it's unclear what the charges would have been. Some people say statutory rape. Some people say adultery, Um, and he fled to Niagara Falls to Canada across the border uh, in 1879. Uh, And that, once he once he left, that was really the beginning of the end.
0: Okay. um, How did we haven't really they're they're doing all this industry, but we haven't gotten to the silverware yet.
1: Right. Right. The silverware was a late was a late add on. The silverware was um, they actually they had a uh, a branch commune in Wallingford, Connecticut. Uh, on the Quinnipiac River Um, that was someplace sometimes where they would send they would if they had to separate a pair of sticky lovers one of them would get sent to Wallingford Um, and my great great grandfather this story goes one day was sort of sitting on the banks of the Quinnipiac and saw the the river rushing down and there was a silverware manufacturer on the Quinnipiac River another big national silverware manufacturer and he thought well why you know we have this land we have this river we have the power we have the people why don't we do that this was in 1877, and so um, just that was just three years before the breakup. Um, but he actually got it started, and he uh, built uh, a silverware manufacturing uh, factory on the on the land. And they they started manufacturing tin spoons. They started out in the sort of low market, down market tin spoons. Um, and but it wasn't until the community broke up that the silverware really got going.
0: Yeah, and so they break up, but what they form, uh, all these people, of course, are going to be displaced if
1: right. you
0: break up the community. So uh, this Oneida Limited was an attempt to keep the business aspect of it going and also going. provide for all right. these people who had lived under this one roof. Right,
1: right. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a sort of a, you know, human, the, the, the prospect of the breakup was really terrifying because it... By 1880, you had all of these, stra- these families where, you know, sometimes a woman would have children by three different men, and maybe two of those men would already be married to other women who they had married before they even came to the community. So, um, you know, the idea of trying to sort of piece back uh, nuclear families from this mishmash of uh, relationships was really daunting, and it, and it was hard. Some women, you know, like the proverbial musical chairs, some women ended up without husbands at the breakup and weren't very much sort of cast out on their own with their children. It was for that reason that they tried the best they could to sort of salvage the, the business aspect and to divvy up shares so that at least uh, all of the members would go out into the world with um, stock in this company and sort of you know yearly payouts from the company, especially if they had children, they got extra money.
0: So everybody knows now that Oneida was very successful in 20th century and what was interesting in your book was how successful they were at marketing the silverware. Yeah. Yeah. And they were quite innovative. Yes. And they knew how to read the market and how to sell their product. Right. With their yeah. advertisements. And then uh, unfortunately of course by 2006 the company has gone went bankrupt, but I know the Oneida brand is still around.
1: It is. Yeah, they sold they sold the name um and so they do still manu- You know, you still do see Oneida out there, but it's not manufactured in the country anymore.
0: Okay. One thing I want to talk about right now, I think, is one of the last things I want to talk about is uh, the burning of these records. I think it was in the forties, nineteen forty. Yes, forty-seven. Mm-hmm. Nineteen forty-seven. Let me ask you, how do how many uh, are descendants of Oneida are there now? Do they are they in contact with each other, and uh, how do they feel about their, this legacy? And how did you feel about this legacy when you when you found out all that you found out and put in putting this book? And I'm sure there's a lot of things you didn't put in the book. So tell me about yeah. that, you know, in terms of your, your personal feelings about, as much as you can, um, yeah. of how this, this feels to the descendants now, today. And was the burning in the 1940s sort of partly out of shame or people trying to hide, uh... uh as much right. as they could, it's, from what happened in that community. Well, I the the burning is one of these sort
1: of mysterious things where, as I say in the book, it's it's like all family secrets. Everybody knows about it, but nobody talks about it. Um, and sort of growing up, literally, you couldn't find. It, I, you know, growing up, I wasn't, I didn't know about it. It wasn't on my radar. But you, you really couldn't find anybody who would point fingers or who would, who knew who had done this, who had ordered it, who had carried it out. Um, And again, as I say in my book, the closest you get is there was a sociologist from the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s who went to Oneida and he was just, he was researching sort of alternative family patterns. And he interviewed a bunch of people and he interviewed some uh, people working for the community, uh, sorry, for for Oneida who admitted that this burning had taken place. But there, again, there were sort of no names attached, whether it was so it it remains a a huge mystery where it happened, you know who ordered it, how it happened, but the idea is is that this vault of documents documenting and you know the that when they formed in the eighteen forty eight they really thought that they this was the vanguard of God's kingdom, and so they kept meticulous notes about everything they were doing because they thought you know this our future, the future will want to read about us uh and this was all burned. And I, I, again, you know, why, why 1947? Why at this particular moment? It's up. It's, I guess I, in my research discovered that um, there was a, a gynecologist who was very interested in the birth control experiment and had sort of uh, that Oneida carried out and had contacts with Oneida descendants who were willing to talk to him and even sort of offered to turn over these, these archives to him because they they detailed the, the birth control methods and the, you know all of the sexual stuff um, and I discovered uh, in the, at the Kinsey Institute in Bloomington Indiana uh, a letter from him to uh, Hilda Herrick Noyes, who was uh, one of uh, Noyes' descendants who was who was open to sort of letting insiders or outsiders into this uh, archive saying, you know, I have this friend named Alfred Kinsey who's a sex researcher. He'd really like to take a look at your stuff. <laughs> and this was in 1947. And then the burning happened. So who knows? You know, maybe, maybe that was enough to... Maybe they decided they have had enough of these sort of pesky outsiders coming in and trying to read their archives. Um, I don't know why it happened then.
0: So uh, so the, yeah. is there still a lot of... There must be a lot of descendants uh, of this community.
1: but i think the last the last generation who actually um who actually sort of grew up in it and knew about it and you know lived it as a as a as a sort of part of an active part of their their history was my father's generation and my father died in october and you know many of his cousins uh he, he was he was 81 uh so that generation is really dying out and their children. Uh, either don't live there anymore or, you know, don't know about it or don't, you know, are, are not particularly interested in it, particularly now that, um, you know, the, the, the process by which the commu- by which Oneida Limited sort of left family control was a, was a slow process, but, um, was pretty well completed by the 1980s. Okay. Um,
0: so. All yeah. right. Well, uh, Ellen, uh, you have been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. It's such a fascinating book. It's extremely well written. It's okay. a really a good <laughs> read. Okay. <laughs> well,
1: I hear that because I, yeah some of my Amazon reviews say, say
0: otherwise. but No, but. I thought it was great. Uh, oh, thank so thank you, Ellen Wyland smith uh, Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It will be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.